so Leviticus 19, 9 through 18. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had, give, had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than any burnt offerings or sacrifices. When Jesus saw he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. For those of you here last week, thank you for coming back. And for those of you who are visiting or missed last week's, um, I would encourage you to go online and listen to last week's sermon. Uh, it will give you some context about what we're talking about today. But before we dump, dive into this, let me open with some prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, to, for the opportunity to gather together, Lord, in your house as your people, people who are looking to serve you and to love you and to know you more. Uh, Lord, bless this time. Lord, the words that I say, Lord, Holy Spirit, let they be your words. Uh, Lord, and let them go out and reach hearts as you would have them do. Uh, Lord, we just ask for your blessing on this time. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, let me just start by saying a couple things. 
not necessarily a confession like last week, but uh, talk about a couple things. We want to make sure we thank the people who have stepped up this week and um, filling in for our regulars. We always appreciate those who serve in the church and, and what they do, but Joan, we thank you for stepping up and playing the organ. Uh, Lori for stepping back there and serving on the computer while others who normally do those things are not here. So we want to thank you for that. The second thing is, you know um, me by now. If you've heard me speak at all, you know that I am not exactly a do-it-way-ahead-of-time sort of guy. And so last week we did a pretty good job of getting a lot of things in ahead of time. So Gary was able to make up the slides, and he had a lot of slides last week. I have a newfound appreciation for pastors who are preparing multiple sermons at multiple times. I could not prepare this, this today's sermon until I gave last week's sermon. I mean, I had some notes and I had some things, but it just... I, I kept getting distracted, and I kept thinking about the sermon I was about to give as opposed to the, this one. So I'm a little lacking in slides today. So what I tried to make up for that with is there was a sheet out by the bulletins that listed off for you uh, many of the verses I'm going to be referencing today. So at least I kind of help you walk through that, follow along with those things. Okay, so last week, we're talking about the Great Commandment. And so, just like your favorite streaming show, I'm going to give you a recap. But unlike your, fav your favorite streaming show, you can't hit skip. <laughs> so we talked about, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he replies first with, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, or strength, with all your strength. That's called the Shema. We talked about that last week because the first word in the prayer that they said was listen. And the, the Hebrew for listen is Shema. And we talked about how it's more than just listening. It's an active and responsive listening. And we talked about how the Lord your God, the Lord is one, that he is God alone, that you shall have no other God before him. God was telling them something about himself in that. And then we talked about what it meant to love with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the great commandment, the primary commandment, the foremost commandment. And that's what the scribe was asking Jesus to give him. But Jesus does something more than that. He talks about the greatest commandment where you're supposed to have an undivided heart, that we are all in and loving God. But he gives him a bonus commandment. He says the second is this. The guy didn't ask about a second. He just wanted to know the primary. But Jesus is important. He says the second is this. Now there's a parallel telling of this story in Matthew in chapter 22. And he said, when Jesus said after he gave the first commandment, he said, and a second is like it. And the second commandment is about our relationship with others. Our vertical relationship. I'm sorry, our horizontal relationship. The first commandment is about our relationship with God, a vertical commandment. And if you happen to be listening to the sermon online, when I'm saying horizontal and vertical, I am moving my hands in those directions because this will happen several times throughout this sermon. So just like we saw last week, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. This time it's from Leviticus. Last week it was from Deuteronomy. Leviticus, specifically 1918. And as um, Becky uh, wrote, there were several verses leading up to this, and it's God's word to Moses that he gave to the Israelites on how they are to treat each other. 
So you can see how an Israelite reading this part of Leviticus, especially the first part of verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, might believe that his neighbor was limited to other Israelites. Even though throughout the Old Testament, God talks about treating the sojourner, the foreigner, well, and how to treat other people, and that would be, and other nations would be invited into Israel. So, as we talk about neighbor, loving your neighbor, we start with the question, what does Jesus mean by neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Well, you can't talk about a neighbor without going to the story of the Good Samaritan. And that's Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. And if you have a a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn there with me. I didn't print this one off in full. So it's Luke chapter 10, verse 25, starting with, And behold, a lawyer, again, a lawyer, the scribe is a lawyer. These are people who are, yes, Diana, lawyers. Um, These are people who are uh, well-versed, educated experts on the law. And he stands up to put Jesus to the test. They are, these religious leaders are constantly trying to trip Jesus up and catch him in his words. And he says to him, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? This is classic Jesus responding to a question with a question. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Sounds familiar. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. There is life in this. This scribe understands what the great commandment is, what it is primary to do. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor. Jesus tells him, do this and you you will live. And I can just picture the scene. The scribe is stood up and Jesus is talking to him and Jesus says, do this and you will live. And he turns to talk to others and the scribe's like, oh, hang on a second, because he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's essentially asking, am I righteous in who I have shown love to? And he's saying, tell me there's nobody else I have to love, that I've got it covered. And so then Jesus gives him this parable. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and he saw him and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him into an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the scribe said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus completely explodes the common thought of who is my neighbor. Turns it completely on its head on who we should love. And it's not just there that he does it. 
In Matthew, he's saying in Matthew 5, 43 to 44a, you have heard it said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Sons of your Father who's in heaven. Sons are heirs. Sons and daughters are heirs. You, can, you will become heirs to the kingdom of God if you love your enemies. So given what Jesus just said, we now need to look at our enemies as our neighbors. So if, even if our enemies are our neighbors, well then, who wouldn't be our neighbor? Precisely. Jesus universalizes neighbor. It can be anyone. But he also particularizes neighbor. It's whoever you pass by. It might even be your actual neighbor. I think of the example of someone who says, I love everybody. Oh, you do? Yes, I love everybody. Well, that's great. Yes, I love the people in China. I love them. That's great. I, I love the people in Africa. I love them. That's wonderful. What about that coworker that uh, gives you a hard time every day and got that promotion that you didn't, you didn't get? Oh, well, um, I'm not so sure about him. I think that's a lot of us in a lot of regard. We miss, we think about loving our neighbor globally, but we miss loving our neighbor locally. If you recall from last week, the word love in the passage from Deuteronomy was the Hebrew word ahava. Now that same word is used here in this passage from Leviticus, ahava, to have affection for others, but it's an involved action. You recall the root of ahava is ahav, which means to give. We are to love our neighbor through the act of giving. Like we talked about last week, giving is the vehicle for love. Ahava starts with loving God first and foremost through word, deed, and thought. This type of ahava, this type of love, creates a house for God to inhabit. Remember this verse from John 14 that we referenced last week. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So as you love God and follow his commandments out of that love, a dwelling place or a house, a temple for God is uh, formed in you. And if from that temple, you show ahava, you show love by giving to others. You are a conduit of God's love. It is this love of God, this vertical relationship, which has taken up residence in us that allows us to love our neighbor, the horizontal relationship, in an unselfish way, without motives, other than to share the love of God and to serve. In fact, you can't hold that kind of love in. God's love flows through us to love our neighbor in a sacrificial way. It is the evidence of a love for God. I heard it described, in fact, this, this morning, I heard this, this described as not so much as a pipe through which God's love flows through us to others, but more as a bowl that fills and overflows. We are filled with God's love, and it overflows us to love others. So in 1 John 4, 19 through 21, the apostle John says, we love because he first loved us. 
Remember that God, in his great mercy, loved us while we were still sinners, still his enemy. Christ came and died for us. Continuing with that verse, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God, God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Loving our neighbor is a natural byproduct of loving God. You could say it is the evidence of loving God. If you don't love your neighbor, it says something about your loving God or maybe your lack of loving God. In other words, if you're having difficulty loving in the horizontal relationship with others, you might want to take some time and examine and focus on your vertical relationship with God. Now, it's not easy loving our neighbor. Giving to them can be costly. I think the Good Samaritan parable is often, I think it's misnamed. It actually probably should be the um, compassionate Samaritan, or maybe even better yet, the compassionate neighbor. But look at what he did. In showing the man mercy, it cost him. It cost him his time, his resources. He had to use something, clothing, to bind up the wounds and used oil and wine to cleanse them. It's money. cost him his, possibly his reputation if he ever got back to his hometown that he helped out a Jew. Remember, the Jews and Samaritans were enemies and hated each other. But he didn't count the cost. He saw someone in need and he responded. He responded. Loving a person must include action, not just feelings. We can't fully love we can't fully obey God's command to love your neighbor by just thinking nice things about it and wishing them well. To love them requires getting up out of the chair and showing them God's love by helping them in whatever way we can. You don't just care about people from a distance. When you see they have needs, you want to meet those needs, just like you want your, your own needs met. The question isn't really who is my neighbor, but rather it is about our own willingness to be a neighbor, ready to love. Notice at the end of the parable, Jesus does not ask who treated the injured man as a neighbor. Rather, he asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? It was the Samaritan was the one who showed the injured man mercy. He had compassion for him. And to have that kind of mercy, that kind of compassion, requires us first to recognize the humanity of the individual and see them as created in the image of God, to see that person as God's image bearer. And as a result, we don't see them as issues to be addressed or problems to be fixed or nuisances to be avoided, but as people to be served. The Samaritan didn't judge the man. He could have easily said, serves him right traveling down this dangerous road alone and not taking any protection with him. Or he could have said, he's a Jew. He wouldn't have stopped to help me. Why should I help him? I found this quote from Martin Buber, who's an Austrian-Israeli uh, um, philosopher. Now, I don't necessarily buy into a lot of his, his, what he says or what he believes because he seems to focus more on loving yourself. But I did like this quote. What you must do is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no one who knows your many faults better than you, but you love yourself notwithstanding. And so you must love your neighbor no matter how many faults you see in him. 
the Samaritan acted as Jesus would have acted. In effect, how Jesus did act. When you love your neighbor, you are acting like Jesus. So, we understand who our neighbor is, and we get the fact that we are to love them, and that by loving God, his love for us pours into us. God and Jesus take up residence in us through the Holy Spirit, the vertical relationship. And that love causes us to love, to give to others, to our neighbor, the horizontal relationship. But the second most important commandment isn't just love your neighbor, it's love your neighbor as yourself. I did not realize until I started preparing this sermon, but there is quite a debate over what as yourself means. There are some who read this phrase and say that there is an implied additional love in there, that it should really read, love your neighbors as you love yourself. And the argument goes that if I am to love my neighbors as I love myself, it necessarily means that I have to love myself before I can love my neighbor. And in saying this, some turn the focus onto themselves and would have you turn the focus onto yourselves. Now, the danger here is that kind of thinking can lead to worshiping of self, of placing too much importance on my needs, my wants, my desires. Now, I am not saying that we shouldn't have good self-image or that we shouldn't care for ourselves. Self-care is important and is needed if you're going to serve others. And we should have a good self-image. But that self-image should be based upon who we are in Christ, that we have our identity through our belief in him as the Son of God, that we are God's image bearers, and that through Jesus we become sons and daughters of the living God heirs to the kingdom of heaven. Through Christ, we are holy, and that holiness grows as we love God more and more completely. That's the identity, self-identity we should have. Now, take care that we do not let the as-ourselves turn into a love of self that surpasses love of God. Loving God with all that we have is the foremost commandment. It supersedes everything else it is an all-in, all-consuming love for God. It is making Jesus, God, my, my first love. Now, in these two commandments, Jesus makes it clear that love is the foundational principle of the church, that it is our primary call. Because love is the focal point. Some summarize these two commandments as love God and love others. On the surface, that sounds pretty good. Love God love people. It does sort of sum it up. However, I think it unintentionally makes these two commandments sound as if they are equal in importance. That we love God and we love people. However, these two commandments are not equal. Our love for God is not on par in any way, shape, or form with our love for our fellow man. I love my neighbor, but I should love God immeasurably more. I am to love him with everything that is in me and available to me. I should love God more than people, more than I love myself. Now, if that's shocking to you, I want to point you to what Jesus says in Luke 14, 26. He says that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What? Now, 
we have to look at the context of this. Jesus did not mean that you have to actually hate your family members and yourself to be his disciple. That would be completely contrary to everything else that Jesus said and would, in fact, violate the commandment to honor your father and mother. As, and as we know, Jesus didn't do that. He's using hyperbole here to emphasize his point, which is that to follow him, you need to love him more than anything else. Anything. And to have, and to, have to be ready to give up anything. Jesus made this comment as part of a larger discussion about counting the cost of discipleship. And he also said in Luke 9, 23, that if anyone would come after me, let them deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. But that type of language about loving God first and foremost over loving man doesn't play very well in our society's me-centered culture today. There's a segment that says loving people is just as important as loving God. And as a result of making them equal to love, they can choose not to follow God in, if, in saying if it conflicts with how they are loving others or themselves. And someone to go even further and reverse the priority of these commandments and say it is more important to love others than to love God. That loving others becomes the ultimate command. And they will say that when I love others, I am loving God. Isn't that what your Bible says? Now, that does seem to have an echo of truth to it because didn't the verses I pointed out earlier in John and 1 John say that loving others is the way we express my love for God? Well, yes, but no. Loving others is the evidence of having a loving relationship with God. Jesus is clear that the priority commitment is to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Loving others is next on the list. So how do I know whether I'm loving others more than I'm loving God? Well, I don't let loving others compromise my holiness. I don't let loving others compromise the moral truths of God. And I don't let loving others compromise serving God in my life. And what can happen is you make loving others the primary commandment. And, and if you do that, you run the risk of starting to accept sin in their lives because you love them. It's as if they're saying to you, if you don't approve of this activity I'm involved in or this lifestyle that I'm living, then you don't love me. And doesn't your God say you are supposed to love me? Well, the answer is yes, I am supposed to love you. But I love him first. And that means I cannot lie about what's right and what's wrong. I cannot approve of your sin. It does not mean that I do not love you but love is not an approval of everyone's life choices. In fact, to do so would be a failure to love them. Sin in, is in every instance, in some sense, a failure to love God. When I sin, I am loving myself more than God. Or when I approve of the sin of others, I'm loving them more than I'm loving God. Love cannot justify sin, and love never competes with holiness. So what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, I want to take a cue from what Jesus says in Matthew seven twelve, And this is the ESV version. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for it is the law and the prophets. You recognize this? Maybe if I said it this way, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's the golden rule. 
But in particular, pay attention to what Jesus said at the end. For this is the law and the prophets. And in Matthew's telling of Jesus answering the question about the greatest commandment, he says that after providing the second commandment, after providing the two commandments, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this tells me there's some significance in the golden rule. That it's not just about loving my neighbor as myself, it's loving him or her how I want to be loved. If I were beaten and robbed and lying half dead on the side of the road, I would want someone to help me. So I think loving others as yourself means to love someone in the way that we would love ourselves. To behave toward another with the same consideration and concern that we naturally and properly under most circumstances show about our own welfare and how we desire to be treated. So now I want to focus in on the scribe's response because um, I find this closing conversation between Jesus and the scribe very interesting. First off, Jesus responds to him and answers his question directly. And as we saw before on the, this parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus often answered a question with a question. But he gave the scribe an answer. And the scribe responds. Let me back up a second. Why, why I find this so interesting is that because um, we talked about that um, most of the people who ask him the questions are in a position, they're asking it from a position where they think they are already righteous or that they are religiously correct. But Jesus shows them that they are far from the truth, that they have things upside down. In fact, that's what's been happening in every question that Jesus has been getting up to this point um, by the other religious leaders. When I think of this, I think of the rich young ruler who, when Jesus told he was lacking one thing and that he needed to sell his possessions and give it to the poor and follow Jesus, he turned around and walked away. Because what was lacking was his love of God more than anything else. Or the lawyer that asked about who was his neighbor, thinking he knew precisely who his neighbor was and had that perception completely blown away. But the scribe's different. He's close. He gets it. He understands it. He knows the Old Testament. And when he responds to Jesus, when he said, he is, the, he is one, when he's talking about God, that's from the Shema, Leviticus 6.4. And when he says, there is no other besides him, that comes from Deuteronomy 4.35. And when he says, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, that's from two Old Testament passages. First from Hosea 6.6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. And from 1 Samuel 15.22. Has the Lord as great delight in burning offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. The scribe gets it. He knows that it is more important to, that we, to God that we love him and follow his word out of that love than to provide sacrifices. He gets that loving God is how the law is fulfilled. More than burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's because when you're giving of yourself in love, it's a sacrifice. Remember, the root word of the word for love, ahav from ahava, means to give. Loving your neighbor and loving and obeying God is to give of yourself, to sacrifice yourself. The scribe understands that simply following the law out of obligation is legalism and is not what God is seeking. Rather, it is through love and the law that it is fulfilled. It's through love that the law is fulfilled, which is what Jesus says in Matthew about the law and the prophets hang on the love central to the two greatest commandments. 
the scribe gets it. But what does Jesus tell him? You are not far from the kingdom of God. And that's where the story ends. Other than we're told that after this exchange, no one dared ask him any more questions. But I can't imagine the scribe wasn't at least thinking, what do you mean I'm not far? What else do I have to do? I think Jesus' response, at least I think this would be consistent with what Jesus is saying, is follow me. I am the kingdom of God. At the beginning of the book of Mark, Jesus begins his ministry by saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Follow me and you will have the kingdom. You will be with the kingdom. Now, everyone I read and listened to um, made reference to the fact that the scribe was, um, they did not make reference to the fact that the scribe was literally feet away from the kingdom. And it, I, it couldn't get past the irony of Jesus saying, you are not far from the kingdom of God. We are this close. We are this close. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me, and in a short period of time, you will see loving God and love your neighbor on display. So at the intersection of loving God, the vertical relationship, and loving man, the horizontal relationship, is the cross of Jesus. Loving God with all of his, he loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. He follows God's will for him despite it costing him his life, despite the fact that God turned his back on him when he's hanging on the cross. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Note that he still called him my God. He did not stop loving God, even at that point. And with his last breath, he still called him Father. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And Jesus truly loved his neighbor as much, and in fact more, than he loved himself. What greater love is there for others than to be nailed to a tree to die so that our sins can be forgiven, covered by his blood, and that we can be reconciled with God? Jesus perfectly fulfilled these two commandments, and we rest in the finished work of Christ. He is our Lord. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Our relationships with others flow through him. Our relationship with God flows through him. To love God is to surrender to Jesus. To love your neighbor is to surrender to Jesus. And that is how we live out the two greatest commandments. Amen. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your love that makes all things possible, Lord. Um, we just praise you and ask us, ask you, Lord, to help us. Help us to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and to love others. Lord, open our eyes to our neighbors in need. And through your love, help us serve them. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.